This episode's guest is Greg Muller from Lead the Pack and Pure Athlete. With over 20 years of experience of working in a wide range of sporting environments with athletes, teams, and organizations, Greg is a premier human performance and leadership training coach. Having worked and trained in many countries, including New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the USA, Japan, the United Kingdom, and Ireland, Greg has had success with athletes and sports teams, including rugby, softball, racket sports, martial arts, gymnastics, swimming, hockey, elite four soldiers, business executives, and sporting business organizations. To get Greg's full bio, you can head over to the show notes. On this episode, Greg and I discuss Greg's background. I asked Greg about Paul Check's influence on him as a coach and a person. I asked Greg about his time with the Auckland Blues. I asked Greg what got him interested in the study of leadership. I asked Greg for his top leadership resources. I asked Greg why he got involved in creating recovery bath salts. I asked Greg for his resources on recovery bath salts in terms of research. I asked Greg about his work at Lead the Pack. I asked Greg what a day in his life is like. Greg tells us how he likes to go about his learning process. And finally, I asked Greg if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why. Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Greg, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. All right. All right, Greg, thanks so much for making time. I really do appreciate it. Um, just for the listeners, let's uh, hear about your background. Uh, my background, so I started um, my career working in the New Zealand Army and um, as a vehicle mechanic, actually, because you couldn't join. You had to join an indentured trade for what I joined in. And so... I did that, didn't really like it, um, but really liked the military and saw the physical training instructors there. So um, I started inquiring about how to become a physical training instructor and stuff like that. Um, you had to do a selection course. So that was a week long, week long of you know, hell, <laughs> getting tested out and physically, mentally, emotionally and all different things. Um, so I did that and just loved it and then went on to serve as a physical training instructor in the army for um the rest of my career so almost 20 years and um was senior instructor of our phys ed school in the defense force in the end uh and then left there because i got offered a job in professional rugby so um i decided to take that and work for the blues blues rugby team um and auckland rugby we had a very successful period then so it was back 2001 2000 to 2004 left there um, and once uh, during that period, we held every trophy that, that you could get in rugby. So we had the Super Rugby Championship, our National Division One Championship, and the Ranfilly Shield, which is um, no team had done up until then. So it was a really successful period. Um, and we got about 20 guys capped as All Blacks at that period as well. So it was good. Um, then... As part of that, I got offered a job in Japan, uh, working with the professional team up there. So I went up there, worked with two teams up there, then um, came back to New Zealand, worked with another team back in New Zealand, and then got offered a job in Ireland with Connaught. Had never heard of Connaught before. <laughs> so I had to Google that and then thought, well, why not? You know, So I came up here, loved it up here, um, but had, had enough of working with uh, those with, with rugby teams and just needed a break, so I started up my own company here, which is Lead the Pack uh, and Pure Athletes. So I've got Pure Athlete, which is my products, and 
Lead the Pack, which is my um, leadership and performance consultancy um, company. Yeah. So that's it, briefly. Great stuff. And uh, you've done extensive training through the Czech Institute too. Can you maybe just touch on the influence of Paul and, and what you've learned through the Czech Institute and how you've applied some of those principles to your work over the years? Sure. So back uh, when I was at the phys ed school in the military, which is, I started there in 97, I got a, I realized then that, you know, becoming an instructor at school was different to just being a student and even the knowledge you needed on the workplace. And, you know, you get asked questions or you're trying to explain quite complex subjects. Um, so I started traveling around the world, uh, not around the world, around New Zealand at that stage and um, trying to learn off as many people as I could. And in one instance, for example, I was on eight different flights in 24 hours to be in three different locations just to go and attend these conferences. And then I wasn't feeling like I was getting a lot from that. I was, it was kind of stuff I, I knew a lot of that. Then I got a phone call from one of our former students and he said to me, geez, you've got to see this guy, Paul Check. I've just been to an Auckland. He's just unfreaking believable. And, you know, you hear that about people and you think, oh, you know, am I going to go and do this? And anyway, so myself, another instructor at the school, and two of our students who had just finished our advanced course went down to his uh, two-day course. It was core, scientific core conditioning in Christchurch. And the Crusaders uh, management turned up like their physio, their strength and conditioning coaches um, and that sort of thing, they turned up to the conference as well. So I knew then, geez, it must be something serious because Paul had just been consulting with the Crusaders. After two hours, man, I was completely blown away. I just said, man, this guy's on a different level to anything I've ever met, met before. Um, and then the students at the first break said to me, can you explain to me some of these concepts he's talking about? Um, and I said, oh, I could, but it'd take me a long time to work it out myself. So I signed up there and then for his, um, his level one um, practitioner's course. Um, and, and subsequently went through and did all his courses. So I went through level four, which is about 200 people have probably been through that, maybe more, a little bit more than that uh, throughout the world. And he opened my eyes up to a lot more. Now, he has had a massive influence on the fitness industry um, in terms of waking it up and raising the standards. Because if you look now at um, the general course curriculums in most courses around the world, they will have some form of stuff that he was teaching very early on in the 90s, you know? Um, now he's expanded his knowledge to whole different levels. So I still um, study under him at different times, um, but uh, certainly was a game changer in terms of, you know, how we look after athletes, how we condition athletes, e everything that we were doing. So, yeah. Just from a, a time frame perspective, when was this, Craig? Like early 2000s, mid 2000s? Uh, so 97, I think, I first started with Paul. And he, he actually came to New Zealand with one of his first um, spots that he started teaching. Um, I'm not too sure what the link was there, but he, he did have a friend there. And anyway, he ended up teaching in New Zealand. You know, like it's hard to be king in your own kingdom, as they say. And um, people in America um, were a bit slower getting on to him. Now, there were some people learning under him in America, but he found it initially his first movement was in New Zealand. Then it branched out to Australia and so on. But um, so it was 97. And then when I was in Japan, I, I had more time because obviously I wasn't working full time um, because we couldn't, because we, we, we needed an interpreter. So 
the professional teams over there basically work. If you're a professional rugby player, well, it was then, um, they had to work as well. So when they went to work, we just did our own thing. And I just studied, basically. So I had Amazon delivering me every day. That's why you can see all the books behind me <laughs> every day. So I wanted to get to level four on the Czech practitioner's course. But the level three is intense. It's very intense. Um, and you have to submit case histories and they're very detailed. So I did that while I was in Japan, um, which allowed me to then get to level four. So that was in 2000. So 97, I started 2004, 2000, yeah, 2004, I think it was that I went 2005. I went to do my level four, maybe a bit later. Yeah. I remember you saying too that you actually went through some of those courses twice because just the information was too overwhelming. Like, did you complete the whole course twice or just some sections of it? I did uh, level one practitioner's course twice, did level two three times. Wow. Level three twice, and I've done level four once. Now, I'd like to go back and do level four again, but it doesn't run it very often um, because it's just getting the people through level three. Yeah, so yeah, I did. And then. Of course, you've got all the um, the courses in between that you have to complete as well. And he recommends a lot of reading, you know. Um, so, I mean, I've got books that you would, you, you'd be opened up to with, with through his, his training, um, um, mechanical lower back pain, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Yeah, big time, yeah. And um, nowadays, do, do, would you keep in touch with Paul much? Um, do you try and you know, stay in contact with him and obviously, you know, he'd be a mentor for life, but just because he's so evolving all the time, have you seen much of an evolution, not only in Paul himself as a person, but I suppose, have you heard any feedback from like the courses that the Czech Institute run now and, and heard like some of the, maybe the updates that have occurred over the years? Um, yeah, good question. Like, uh, yeah, I do keep in contact with Paul. Not real, real regularly, but um, now and again, we'll, we'll keep in contact. We'll send me a couple of new um, research papers or things like that, you know. Um, and in terms of what the Czech Institute's doing, like it's always evolving, and that's mm. one of the one of the strengths of Paul. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that have been said about him, you know, like it's people with limited understanding often make very bold statements about people, and they they can catch catch on quite quickly to those that are, that are surrounding them. They're surrounding themselves with, and um, you know, like if someone says Paul's a Swiss ball guy or something like that, that's how they see him. But Paul's way, way more than all that, mm. you know. Um, and he, 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 like for example, when you when I did my level three training and, and I wanted to get to level four because he said I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how the game's really played at level four, how you really work with uh, clients, you know. And so that triggered something in me. And when I got there on the first day level four, he said, right, you guys have got to this level. Now I want you to forget everything I've taught you. And now I'm going to teach you how the game's really played. And you're like, man, I'm just pent around a grand getting there, man. Just learning all this stuff. Like, you know, all the anatomy of the neck and how it works and how you rehab someone's neck and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is freaking deep and hard to learn. And he says to forget it all, <laughs> you know? Because he's taking you to another level, but um, <clears throat> what it does is just opens you up, and yeah. you know that's what ultimately I find people in this industry um, 
they're the good ones. They're, they're the good guys on the block. You know, generally that they, they want, they're always looking for the new information, looking for new information. Now, some aren't ready to learn as quick as others because they'll have their own um, cognitive challenges and biases and stuff like that. Um, but really, most of them are looking to do things well and to always learn. What you find is in the industry, if you're working with um, the professional sports teams and like that, it's you know it's hard because the strength and conditioning or the performance coach is the one who's really pushing the boundaries and you get a lot of kickback. You know, so what I'm saying is Paul got a lot of kickback as well. He's had more kickbacks than anybody. Um, but if you look at the timeline, and I've known him since 1997, everything that he's taught is coming. Everything. There's not a thing missing. And, you know, you can look in different areas, but the really evolved performance coaches or consultants uh, at that level, you know, looking at, at the deeper aspects of what really drives human performance. Yeah, like, I mean, he was, like, the first person to come out with, like, assessing breeding. And people were like, what is this guy talking about? What has Brett got doing? And he was just like, you know, I don't know if you said it like this, but you could just really see in Paul's mind, like, you'll see. And then, like, he was also one of the first guys to talk about neurodevelopmental patterns in rehab. And then, like, you know, like, DNS became this huge thing back in, like, 2009 and 10. And it's just all, like, you know, it's kind of like all the Czech people are like, yeah, he's been talking about that, like, since the late 80s. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to respiration, like, PRI, and it was all the rage with respiration and, I suppose, DNS to a degree and, and other sort of... um other sort of systems out there as well, but it's just like, you know, PRI became a rage then in the strength condition industry about 2010 as well, around the same time as DNS. Anyway, just from my perspective. And again, it's just kind of like, yeah, Paul Check was uh, talking about that stuff in uh, like the nineties and all, you know, and it's just like, again, it's, I suppose it's like that saying, you know, when, when the student's ready, the, you know, the master will appear. Um, and it's just, people weren't ready for Paul. Like it was just too much too soon. And I even think nowadays, like people, particularly the younger generation, you know, probably people born in, in like the late 80s, 90s and the millennials, they're probably a little more open than previous generations to things like, you know, the more esoteric spiritual stuff that Paul talks about too. Like, cause, to be honest, this is just me personally. I love when he talks about that stuff. I love when he goes off and talks about God and the devil. And I'm like, yeah, that's the shit I want to talk about. Fuck the neck. I'm okay. With I'm okay about the neck for now. But uh, no, he's, he's great. He's great. I don't know if you've anything to add to that, but uh, that's that's kind of like my roundup on my questions for Paul because I want to get into your supplement company and your lead the pack. And also, I would love to hear more about your time with the Blues, but if you any else to add there to your time with Paul, because I know he's been such a huge influence. The floor is yours. Uh, two things. One is um, thoracic outlet, outlet syndrome, for example. Like, I've never even heard of that. And, and interestingly enough is when I started working with um, some elite athletes and stuff like that, some of the medical people didn't really understand thoracic outlet syndrome as well. So he was teaching that back in those late 80s and early 90s in his courses. You know, and he gave the example of a golfer, a female professional golfer that came to him who had, had her sclenies uh, removed, her three mm -hmm. sclenies muscles, because they couldn't fix this, this, this neck problem, right? And um, <clears throat> anyway, he did test on her and says, you got thoracic outlet syndrome. But that's where he was at. Like, he was so far advanced. He was looking at these things, you know, which is which are outside the spectrum of normal, probably medical or um, practitioner training. It, it will be in there. Someone would have would have already, you know, devised these tests and stuff like that. But he was bringing this into mainstream. Um, so of course, the professional athlete, athlete or the girl was fairly shocked when she realised she didn't need to have her sclenes uh, removed, and you can't put those things back in, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
um, so he was bringing that to it. And then, so his whole, the whole spiritual development. And so the second part of that is, is now I, when I first did my, I went and did level uh, two, it was called nutrition lifestyle coaching course back in 2000, I think it was 2001, somewhere in there in the U S and I was there and we walked in after about the fourth or fifth day of training. And he had there, he was going to do a, um, a, a chakra cleansing on someone. And straight away I went into absolute shock, you know, cause I'd never been exposed to anything like that before. I was military man. I was like, you know, push ups and sit ups. And that's why I went to this course cause I want to learn more about the body and stuff like that. So he does this, these chakra, uh, cleansing and stuff like that and I'm like my heart's racing thinking man this is not what I'm about eh? I want to learn this stuff but he said to me at the end he goes okay if, you, if you're not ready for that I want you to go and read this book and I want you to go and um, have a look at this stuff and when I started slowly going through this I thought man I can see the relevance to this and all the athletes I'm seeing and all the things that, all the people I'm working with so that opened me up and now I, I've spent a lot of time looking at all those elements you know a lot so yeah, so that's that's been part of my development as well. So before we get into your current work with um, with pure athletic, uh, pure athlete, and lead the pack, talk to me more about your time in professional rugby. I'm very interested to hear that because I know it was a very successful time with the Auckland Blues. You had I was actually just looking up a little bit the background, um, particularly the day, the era when you were there. Like they were, they had two very poor seasons around 2001 or two, and then 2003. They had this great season, so they did beat the Brumbies in the semis, beat the Crusaders in the final, won a super yeah. As you said, you know, you held three trophies at one time. And, you know, how how did you find your time in professional sport with the with the Blues and any other professional organization that you've had the chance to work and consult with? Well, like, basically, what, what what's your view on professional sport when you were there? And, you know, maybe just touch on your time with the Blues and what you implemented there to, you know, help them kind of turn the boat around from being you know, a fairly poor average team to serious success in your time there. So maybe two questions there. What are your thoughts on professional sports? I know today you're, you're not as involved as you were, but just when you were there, what was your sort of overall arching thoughts when you stepped away? And then after that, just talk about what, what, what you did implement when you were at the Blues. We just talk about the experience, how, you know, you re- related to the coach and the players and that type of, that type of um, background would be great. Sure. So when I got offered the job at the Blues, um, <clears throat> I was obviously still working in the army. I was the I was the boss of the gym. We had the biggest gym in the army. And um, what I did is I, I thought, man, I, I'd been always been in the army. I hadn't. I'd left school and just joined the army, so I didn't know any different. I know, of course, I worked, worked with uh, some of the uh, semi-professional teams uh, while I was still in the army, but I was still in the army, you know. And um, so I was a little bit. Uh, hesitant and I wasn't, I was a little bit frightened about what was ahead of me because I was thinking, man, I'm gonna have to raise my game to get into this this professional sport, you know. So, I one of my staff, I said, Look, go and freaking photocopy and get everything saved onto a DVD that I'm gonna need, you know, before I left. <clears throat> and I got up there, and to be honest, I was in absolute shock. I mean, they were then, this is 2001, a long way behind where the, where the army was at in terms of their system structures and their professional approach to, let's say, leadership, um, even coaching, in terms of coaching people how to do things like, you know, maneuver, battle maneuvers and stuff like that. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. And, and um, you know, because it only went 
professional rugby. I only went professional in 1996, so it was only five years in, really. Um, so a lot of their systems, their structures weren't set up. Now it's changed a lot since then, but there's been a lot of pain through that period. And you know, talking to people that have been in the industry a long time, that's still there because you know you deal with big egos, huge egos in those 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 roles, um, and people trying to hold their turf, uh, which is really challenging. <clears throat> like um, because I was learning, my my learning went through the roof of Paul Check, and I. I've always had this, you know, um, philosophy that I want to do the best for my clients or best for my athletes. You know, that that's the primary objective of what I do. It's not not about me, you know. And Paul's very good at teaching that because you know people go away and do courses, and you know you could have a doctorate and something like that, and all of a sudden you know you're defending that rather than actually looking at what's in front of you and doing what's right for that person because you know you think that I've got to prove myself, or um, <clears throat> if I don't prove myself. Um, I'm going to protect it and I'm not going to let them go and see another practitioner. You know, that's, that's a wrong way to look at things. So um, because my learning was going through the roof, I, I completely overhauled the gymnasium and the, the blues, the blues gymnasium. I mean, I walked in there and it was all machine based and it only had just been put together a year before we got there. And there's been a million euros on setting this thing up. And I walked in and said, this thing's all wrong. You know, now I had to be careful how I did that, but over a period of time, I was there three and a half years, I I had everything pretty much wiped out of there. We had cable machines in there, we had ropes. I'd set up um, a specific wrestling area. I had a, a rehab area which had total gym in it. that had um, all all the screening things, you know, that you would see in a lot of gyms now, but don't go back then, no one's all that stuff, you know? And interesting enough, when I left, they sold that equipment because no one knew how to use it. They didn't know what it was. You know, now they've probably bought it back again. But the point was, it was too far ahead of them as well at that time. Um, so it was challenging. We had Paul come in as a consultant, you know, um, while I was there. I brought him in um, because I knew that we wanted to get to the next level. But again, he was probably pushing too, uh, pushing too fast for people. And that's been a lesson for me in leadership as well. Um, what was the second part of the question? It was... Um, your then your own personal insights into professional sport as a as a whole sort of profession in and of itself. Like, what did you take away from your time in professional sports? Because I know like the it's you know the the sort of common type of team that seems to be related or associated with professional sports is you know it's a grind. You know it really kind of deflates people after a number of years. Like the typical sort of scenario I've seen from a lot of my peers who are in the field is. You know they get a they get a position whether it's an assistant SNC or a head SNC at a top organization, whether that's in rugby soccer or Australian rules, or the NFL. And they get there and they're you know they're really enthusiastic and it's a new challenge and it's a great opportunity and it's a good salary, it's and it's demanding work and you know you're passionate about SNC or whatever you want to call it nowadays. You, you know physical physical preparation or you know what I mean fucking performance enhancing specialist that all sounds like a fucking uh, sex therapist to me performance enhancing specialist but uh, the point I'm trying to make is you know they're there for a while it's a year or two or three down the line and they feel like you know while I really do appreciate this opportunity I feel like I'm not making the impact I could and then like you know it's another year or two and they're there five years maybe six years and one day they're just sitting there on the jacks and the voice in their head goes I'm not happy. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. 
And then the other voice in the head goes, you ungrateful bastard. All you said you ever wanted was to be a strength and conditioning coach for a top sporting organization. And here you are, you ungrateful son of a bitch. And now it's like this argument, you know, this, this dilemma in the head that's going on. But what I eventually see is like a lot of my peers, like they just, they end up getting divorced or splitting from, from their girlfriend because they just spent so much time coaching and in the building. And another thing I noticed in pro sports is it just becomes this massive game of one-upsmanship. It's like, oh, Greg, what time are you at the, the training ground today? 6 a.m.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you left at what time yesterday? You left at 4, so you only did 10 hours. Well, I actually came in at 4.30, watched a bit of film beforehand, didn't leave till 8 p.m. last night. But what that guy's not telling you is he had to fucking go to a hotel because his wife booted him out because she's sick of him now at this stage, breaking promises to you know go collect the kids. And he's like, oh, we had another meeting with the coach. I'm sorry. Joe, so it just takes over their life, and so like their relationships get suffer, friends and family, they start don't start looking after themselves. Their sleep takes a hit, their nutrition takes a hit, their training takes a hit, and just everything takes a hit. And then they end up being like this, like really poor version of themselves, where they're cranky and tired all the time. So everyone now thinks that they're an asshole, and like thinks that like that's their like temperament, but it's not. It's just a reflection of the environment that they're projecting out because they're just so beat down by the whole professional sport process. And then if you do meet that person like two or three years later and you heard that they left, like they're out doing something different or they just took a few years off and now they're just consulting or they're just working for a, a private entity and you meet them, you're like, my God, he's lost all the weight. He looks great. He's happy. Yeah, so that's kind of the, that, I just want that out there. That's kind of what I've seen in a lot of people who've gone through pro sports. And that's not everyone. I'm not painting everyone the same brush, but just from your perspective, when you were involved in pro sports, I'd just love to get your thoughts on it. And if you still consult now and again with top teams, is that still what you kind of currently see? Yeah, that, that summary would be fairly accurate, man. I mean, when I say fairly accurate, it's about 99.9% accurate. Okay. And what's happening at the end? Like I did a, I actually did a podcast with Paul Chick, uh, maybe six, eight months, year ago. I can't remember what it was, but, um, and spoke briefly about that. And I got a lot of, people email me from pro sports saying, fuck man, you're on the money with that. Was what you just said, basically. Um, the organizations are suffocating you, man. You know, the expectations are, are through the roof, you know, because everyone's under pressure. Like the Blues, for example, and Auckland Rugby, when I was there, if we didn't make semi-finals, man, heads are going to roll. You know, that was the expectation. And ultimately, as a strength and conditioning coach or performance coach, you only have so much say in things, you know. And as I said, you know, most of those guys are the ones going out there really trying to learn and trying to evolve. And they real, then they realize, well, hang on a second, the way you're treating your staff is actually having an effect on the performance of the team. And people aren't linking these things together. So after a period of time, the organization just starts to suffocate you. And, um, you know, you don't feel like you're having the impact or having the influence or having the voice that you we're all put on earth to have, you know? And that was me. I was like, you know, like I said, I left the army thinking I'm going to have to take a step up when the reality was I was taking about a 10 step backwards. And I was, I was in charge of a fairly big organization in the army. And then now I'm, I've got, I've really got no, nobody I'm, I'm, I'm overseeing. And I'm having to listen to, to people who have had no experience in leadership, senior leadership, like we got through the army, um, and, and making decisions that you know are not going to be a fruit or are going to cause some harm to the organization, um, which is why I went on to go and do my master's in leadership and, and things like that. But um, 
yeah, look, today, um, and it has, it has got better. It has got better. Um, and it also depends on the people you're working with. Like, I just was speaking to a good friend of mine um, who worked for me in the Army, and he's been out working with proteins for a long time. Same thing, you know. Had enough and said, screw this. Started up his own thing. Um, but the attraction, you know, the pull to go back is strong, too, because there's freaking good money in it. Like, to earn the money you're earning um, in professional sports. Like, I was earning very good money up in Japan. Um, seriously good money, you know, and um, I just gave it up because I said, no, nah, what am I doing here? I'm sitting around here doing nothing every day and I'm just not living my life. So you come to, you come to peace with that and say, Roy, you know what? I'm, I'm happy earning a quarter of what I was earning up, up in Japan, for example, um, but I've got a better life, you know, um, and I, I have greater influence on the people that come to see me because you know, the amount of times that I got hauled over the coals for doing right by the athlete, but it was wrong by the organisation or wrong by some of the medical practitioners within those organisations because it, it, it dented their egos. It, I, I, I mean, that's just not, not, not acceptable to me. In the end, I said, I'm not interested in this anymore, you know, because that's not what I'm here for. Um, you know, and I could talk about some very elite athletes that weren't getting weren't getting treated because egos were in the way, man. Yeah, uh-huh. part of getting into your um, research and studying, working to leadership. What got you into that field? Why leadership? What what intrigued you towards it? And what have you learned from all of your time studying that particular area of expertise? Um, what I found is as I was learning is that. Well, I mean, I was very lucky in the fact that um, I I had been, you know, introduced to leadership very young in the army. At 17 years old, I got um, put in a situation out in the middle of a field in the army and said, "Build an aerial ropeway across this road here." I didn't know what a freaking aerial ropeway was, and all there's a big power pole there and all this rope and these turf winches and steel wire and pegs and stuff like that. I had a clue what it was. You know, and they said to build one. Well, I didn't know what to build because I didn't know what it was. So um, that was my introduction at 17 years old. We get taught through the military, you know, through your leadership training courses and informal leadership to really um, do those things. So you can you can build an aerial ropeway across a freaking big valley at night, you know, and, and get people to do it. Um, <clears throat> and what I realized as I was in professional sport that, you know, uh, most of those people had none, none of that. Well, they wouldn't have had that been experienced or, or been uh, subjected to any of that, those experiences and stuff like that. But also um, their philosophies and leadership and stuff of like that were, were left wanting a lot. Um, how are you dealing with the, the dynamics of human relationships? And, you know, like even down to um, <clears throat> the, the um, contracts that are in place for people, you know, and dealing with the human relationships that way and the human resources. Uh, so, you know, as, as I evolved as a strength and conditioning coach and I started learning more about nutrition and I started learning more about um, sports psychology, which I've studied deeply as well, um, all the aspects of that, I realized that, you know, I didn't want to be just a strength and conditioning coach. I want to be a performance coach. And that, that term wasn't really around uh, going back 15 or 20 years ago. Now it is used a lot, uh, athletic performance coach and stuff like that. But I see myself as more than that and offering the leadership as well, which is the aspect that 
that ultimately has the say in what's going on, you know? Um, because, <clears throat> you know, John Maxwell, who's, who's written maybe 60-odd books on leadership, he said, everything begins and ends with leadership. And he's right, you know? Every decision, whether you make it as an individual or you make it for a team or for an entire organization, whether it's a Fortune 500 com company, the decisions you're making are leadership decisions that will affect the people, the performance, and any projects that, that you're working on. So um, I, I didn't have an uh, academic qualification, so I went out and did my master's degree on that and, and did it focused on um, leadership for sports and the criteria to, to be involved with my study was that they had to have won uh, at the Olympic level or um, international level in terms of World Cups or something like that. So it was a high quality um, coach I was looking for to see what the leadership traits were from that. And if anyone wants to see, get that information, go my, my, to leadthepack.net, my website, and there's a free download of just the shortened version of that, that um, my findings there. Um, but yeah, because what I find is, you know, we are blinkered or we're blinded to how much we've evolved and because I've done a lot and, and I've really pushed myself working in business, working in sports, working in the military, I've seen a lot of different philosophies and different ways of doing things. Um, you know, and what I'll do, for example, if I go in to consult with a team, I'll walk in there and you see a different landscape, you know, you see things because I've been exposed to all these different things. And, and the one thing I'd say to you is that, or to the listeners that are going to listen to this, is that most people are investing in um, in things within the organisation that have a low return on their investment, you know? <clears throat> um, and, you know, look, if you look at the... the, the if, if you trace elite sports, you know, a lot of the philosophies, the leadership philosophies from that would have come from the, the military, all right? They would have because... The military, the one that got the resources, the time, um, the people, and the money to invest in these things. Like sports, generally, aren't, sports teams aren't going out and investing in, in this stuff. They've got games each week. So they, they're pulling these philosophies from that. And I'm still linked to very closely to some people very high up in the New Zealand military who give me stuff, their latest leadership stuff and things like that. Um, but if you, look, if you look at the timelines of different sports, like, you know, um, football has been in, in, in the UK for many years. So they're, they're a lot further along the, the, the timeline than rugby because rugby was later onto the scene, you know? And then if you look at GAA, they're another step behind that. So when I go into GAA teams, for example, I see, you know, in terms of, if you look at the military, there's a car crash happening in the GAA, you know, with the way they're trying to get the outcomes they're looking for and the approaches they're taking, whether it's just a simple a physical approach or it's, it's a human resource approach or whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, some of the teams I've worked with in the GA, for example, they spend a lot of time doing stuff that's not going to give you any, uh, make a dent on what they're actually looking to achieve, you know? So um, that fascinates me because ultimately every person that's involved in any of these sports and, um, even with one-on-one -on -one clients, is looking to make improvements. But wouldn't you stop and think and say, well, hang on a second, uh, if this guy here is telling me that 
what I'm doing there is 90% of that's just wasted energy. I'm, I might as well go and try it this way. Well, then you, you would look to try and do that, you know, because we all want to get bigger, better, faster, or whatever. You know, and that's what my leadership stuff's about. Like, I, I want to, you know, because, like I said, the decisions come back to that leadership. Every decision is, whether it's good or bad, will come back to a leadership decision. Where are you focusing your attention, you know? Because a leader's making those decisions. In, in terms of some top resources regards to leadership, where would you direct our listeners to? Geez, I've got a good pile of books um, that I... I I um I refer to a lot. Um, yeah, there's 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 loads of stuff out there now, like on the internet. I'm just trying to think. I, I mean, I don't don't have one person I particularly follow. Um, like I said, Maxwell's got sixty odd books on leadership, you know, um, and they're not they're not deep research based books. They're just philosophies of how to lead. So they're very good. There's a book called Coherence, written by a guy who was involved with the um, British. Olympic rowing team. He's a cardiologist um, and he went into leadership because he wanted to have more influence uh, and brilliant book, but it, it goes into some of the deeper stuff that's in behind teams and driving teams. And I look at the stuff and I read his book maybe 10 years ago. And when I look at that book and think, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't even be close on, like he's got say six levels of leadership. They, most teams wouldn't even be a past level one. You know, but they're trying to get level six outcomes. You know what I'm saying? And and that's that's the challenge. But the 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 gap between level one and six is significant. I mean, you've got to work at that. You know, the, the All Blacks who you know I have uh, Nick Gill who's with the All Blacks, who's a good friend of mine. Um, so we keep in touch from time to time. I've had him over here in his lectures in Ireland, in Dublin, when he was uh, here a couple of years ago with the All Blacks. Hoping to do it again when you come back this year, but that's obviously not going to happen. But you know, like um, you know, he, he said to me, the All Blacks have four key pillars, four key pillars that drive them. All right. So this is what I do with a lot of teams I work with, um, and they make all their decisions based on those four key things. And one of them, which which would surprise a lot of people, is recovery. You know, four key pillars. That's it. One of them is recovery. And he's explained to me, for example, if they're driving, say, because you know they travel around the world, and if they're driving to a game and they, they finish, uh, not to a game, to training, and they've got to come back to the hotel and they get caught in heavy traffic and uh, it's an hour in traffic or whatever coming back to the hotel and the pool where they're going to, say, another 20 minutes down the road, he said, they'll make the decision, no, we're not going to the pool, right? Because that's another 20 minutes we're delaying our recovery. And what's the point of sitting 40 minutes on the bus just to get in the pool where we can go and sit in their baths or in the hotel? So they, they always make the decisions on that, you know? Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting to see that, you know, this, this, these, these leadership decisions are driving that team. But he, the other thing I want to say on that was he said to me, <clears throat> they work very hard on these things. And that's the bit that a lot of teams miss because they want, level, like I said, level six outcomes but they're operating at level one and they're not prepared to invest heavily in to get to level two. And just to get to level two requires a big investment in developing your people, um, training your people, giving new behaviors, you know, um, getting them to, you know, like for, for example, when I was at Connaught Rugby, um, I, I instigated an idea which uh, I sort of, you know, people weren't, weren't too excited about, but I said, 
we had a team room. So the players got a team room built and they had TV put in there and stuff like that. And I said, right, let's start putting boxing and building my library. Because let's, what if those players, when they say, maybe I'll pick up one of these books, you know? Um, uh, you know, like Game Changer or, you know, there's a couple of books on Game Changing, which is phenomenal books. And what it's doing is it's just programming them and going, holy heck, maybe this, this has something to do with, you know, my performance because ultimately our performance comes back onto ourself, self-responsibility, self-discipline. And um, I also said, I've said to a number of coaches, you know, Jack, Jack Canfield's book on um, the principles of success, which is he took basically from Napoleon's Hill's book, which is to think and grow rich. And I don't know if you've read those books, but think and grow rich, which is one of the first success books ever written. There was a couple before that, but it was it sold millions and still sells a lot of copies today. He updated that. And when I read that book, I read it and said, you know what? If I had the choice to either train my athletes or get them to read that book, I'd get them to read the book. And it sounds like freaking madness. But the point is when people understand the principles that drive performance and that they're responsible for it and they take responsibility for that, for that everything changes because most of the coaches I'm working with or consulting with or teams I'm working with are always telling me about the, um, uh, the, the problems they're dealing with aren't necessarily with getting a guy to go faster. It's about getting them to turn up on time and to, to, to get the shit together, you know, to make sure that he's prepared. And, you know, I talked to Nick Gill about this with the All Blacks as well. And he said, you know, when he first started the All Blacks, he was in shock going, oh, these guys aren't actually doing a lot of things <laughs> that he knew would drive performance, you know? And so if you read the book, and I said this to one of my, one of the coaches I worked with um, a good few years ago, and he came back to me and goes, oh, I just read the book. He goes, now I know what you mean. I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 that's the element. So, so you go to level, from level one to level six, right? You've got to put some work in, man, you know, and the leader's got to be evolving as well because the, the organization's only going to get as big as the leader. You know, and I've said that to a number of people I've worked with as well. So you, that's why you've got to continually invest. And I also said earlier on that often what I see is the people investing are the performance coaches, the strength and conditioning coaches, but the rest of the organization um, are often aren't evolving that much or that speed, you know? So yeah, that was a long answer to your question. But. Oh, great stuff. So moving on to your two companies right now, your supplements-based company, um, Pure Athlete. Maybe just for the listeners, tell us why you decided to go down that avenue and the products you offer. Uh, so Pure Athlete was a result of the research with the Blues. We did, a, we did research on, it's called electrosomphoresis. So what it does is it draws out the institutional fluid in you and, and gives you mark, hormone, hormonal markers. What we found from that, that, that testing was that, um, now this is the first ever done in the world for rugby team. It had been done with the, the, our, um, our sailors just before us and we, we, we launched onto it with the Blues. Uh, but... Um, what we found is that a lot of the approaches we were taking with our recovery and, and the loading of our players was not right. Textbook, textbook, right, yes. But in terms of ground truth, it was wrong. You know, we were actually um, causing more uh, cortisol spikes or 
uh, creating Kainé's levels of jumping in players because of the way we were training through the week. And yet we were looking for them to peak at the end of the week, you know? Um, so as a result of that, we changed a lot of our philosophies and what we were able to do is manipulate the recovery curve so that players were a lot fresher going into games. And the, the upside of that is obviously they're, they're feeling fresher, so their testosterone levels are higher, so their will to stay in a fight and their will to fight is stronger, you know? Um, anyway, so part of that was the recovery techniques, and, and I've been studying with the Czech Institute and studying a lot of other natural therapies and stuff like that. So I, I looked at um, baths, you know, um, baths were my first thing I looked at and using essential oils and, and bath salts. So that's um, what pure athletes start off as. And um, then we've got massage oils, soaps that have essential oils in it. So it's all good. So it's a body care thing. It's looking after your body. So if you look at the spectrum or terms of a hierarchy of, you know, how we should be looking after ourselves, body care should be high up in there because if your skin, um, if, the, if the skin is not in good condition, it's telling you something about your health in terms of your overall health of your body and your overall physical health. So, um, yeah, so um, bath salts, range of products here. You can go onto the website and see it, or Pure Athlete, um, all the products that are available. Um, I found that it required a huge amount of education because we talk about, um, you know, for some people just getting to the, getting, that they see just being physically fit as their, that, that's, that to them is all you have to do, you know? You take in the next step, mental resilience, mental fitness, emotional fitness, spiritual fitness. Um, <clears throat> some of that's not even in their, in their field, you know, of view. So um, what I found is that a lot, a lot of people weren't necessarily ready to embrace the fact that, heck, I've got to recover as well because, the, you, know, you know, as we know now, <laughs> recovery is probably more important than the actual training, you know? Because you're recovering more, more than you aren't, but it's how you recover and what you're doing. Um, so the bath salts have a big impact on that. Um, I found the females were more readily accepting of it because, you know, they tended to look after their bodies better than guys. Guys treat their bodies like a dump truck often, but want it to perform like a Ferrari, you know? Whereas the females will, will polish the Ferrari themselves and they'll look after themselves, you know? Uh, so, but it's, it's slowly turned. And again, it's a little bit like the Paul Check story, you know. Um, <clears throat> what I found is that this whole recovery thing has ta just taken off in elite sports. So it's trickling down into clubs and stuff like that. But it's above all that, you know, it's about human health. It's about your own individual health and taking responsibility for that, you know. And like I've got this sitting on my desk right now, this is a Tai Chi stick, which I got introduced to over 20 years ago. I do this about every single day. You know, it's a meditation that I do. I teach to athletes and stuff like that. Um, and what that does is it, it's, I'm investing back in myself all the time, each day. So it's part of my process of um, making sure I'm on top of my game, I'm recovering my body, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Self-management is... Is key is key. Um, just my own, out of my own personal interest. Also for the listeners too, is is there any like really good resources on like bath salts, whether it be like even just like an introduction, if it's just a book, 
And then also, is there any like more deeper uh, research out there that people could look up as well? He's looking for a book, people. Yeah, for a book, actually, because um, I use this book. Uh, to be honest, there's, there's not a huge amount out there, you know, because I did a, did a lot of research into this, um, obviously from a company, and then we had we come up against people that uh, questioned the value of these things. So I did a lot of research into it. There's a lot of different research out there if you, if you look for it. Um, I can't find the book at the moment, but there's a book by Human Kinetics which talks about recovery um, and all the different protocols that that, that were, were pretty much available. Um, for example, you know, ice baths became very trendy even back 20 or 20 odd years ago. But you know, the, the the even the science behind that's not that conclusive. You know, mm. in fact, in that Human Kinetics book, I think out of the nine studies they looked at, eight of them said there was no benefit at all. Um, that's off the top of my head, so don't quote me exactly on that. But the point is, and I've said this to a lot of athletes, I said, well, if you feel better doing it, if you, you know, if it gives you a psychological benefit, then keep doing it, but I want you to do something that, that I, that's proven to do, to, to actually do something for you, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like one, I think, huge aspect with recovery is that people don't see it like, we do training like training is a stimulus it's an input to the system and recovery is no different too in terms of a modality it's a stimulus to the system and what's recovery for one individual could actually end up being a stressor so like i've heard coaches give examples of like you know they were talking some guy was talking about um like an african-american soccer player like and you know throwing him into like the deep end of the swim pool he can't swim you know what i mean so he's there like drowning you know, and he, you know, and he's, he's like, like, so the coach saying, do you think he's getting recovery from that? He's like having a panic attack. Whereas like the other lads, you know, the, like some of the European boys or lads who could, you know, who could swim or on, or who had exposure to swimming growing up as a kid, they were there chilling out, relaxing on the, on like the floats and having a great time. And he was like, they were definitely a lot more parasympathetic than this poor fella. Like, so the point again, just being that, you know, what's, what's a recovery input for some individuals could be stress and, I've seen that too as a therapist too. Like, you know, you get like individuals who respond very well to some deep tissue therapy and maybe some dry needle. Whereas if you took out dry needles with another person, even just a thought of a dry needle, like is just stressful to them or even deep tissue therapy. So I learned that I got appreciation for that off Joel Jameson, you know, in, in a lot of his work, you know, kind of saying that no different to training recovery inputs also need to be individualized because the responses will be different from one individual to another. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, like, um, you, you want to be doing some form of parasympathetic work throughout your, you know, throughout your week, you should be doing that type of work, but a lot of people are doing sympathetic. They're just constantly draining the system, you know? So they're adding stresses, but they think they're doing right. Because like I said, their perspective or perception of the world is, you know, I'm doing some training to keep myself fit, but they're actually potentially doing more harm, you know, over time if they're not putting back in or giving back to it. So moving into your work with lead the pack and great stuff. Very interesting. It was on your website. Um, interested again to hear, you know, what was the genesis of Lead the Pack? Obviously, you know, it's coming off the back end of your research into leadership, but I suppose maybe just starting this consultancy company and what you offer. I see you do retreats, um, you have some great um testimonials there on the website too from other people who went through your retreats. So maybe just bring us through that journey with Lead the Pack. 
Yeah, so, you know, interesting enough, I, um, what I saw when I was working with elite athletes is they needed to be developed as human beings, you know? And I, I was actually interviewed for the All Black job, and I, I mentioned that in the All Black job um, back in 2004. And so part of that, I said, you know, we need to be taking our, our athletes on a journey of development because I'd work with soldiers and, you know, a soldier at 24 years old would be a full corporal approximately at that rank, full corporal, and would be leading a section potentially into some fairly hostile situations. Um, over very hostile terrain, navigating at night, you know, you're fully loaded up, um, you're never, you know, you're navigating using a compass and stuff like that. So it's, it's a, it's a challenge. Like, um, and what I saw is I saw a lot of really good athletes on the pitch, but their lives were a fucking shambles, you know, and not just their lives, but even the way they were putting things together to, so I was saying, well, if they could get better at all these other things, then they could just focus their attention on, on their performance. Surely things have got to be better, you know? So that's been used as a bit of a, uh, for a long time now. You know, better people make better rugby players. Uh, she's been picked up on other sports and stuff like that. <clears throat> so what I started saying is when we go away with these teams, there's a lot of downtime. Why don't we start teaching these guys some of these things? They can be, they can be specifically for their performance, you know, about nutrition and, so I started sitting down and teaching people. You know, I, I, we'd arrive in some place in New Zealand or we might arrive overseas. And I'd say, right, lads, <clears throat> we're going to do a stretching session. And after the stretching session, we're going to do a session on um, <clears throat> goal setting or something like that. You know? That was pretty foreign. And <clears throat> um, some players said, this is exactly what we've been looking for. This is, this is what we want. Like I was looking at work of... Um, um, uh, the um, winning the winner's bible which is by uh, Dr oh jeez I can't remember his second name he's a Kiwi anyway but he worked with Formula Run races and what he found is that, 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 that using scientific data he's a neuroscientist you know um, he found that that by actually getting the person better themselves and getting themselves more at peace with themselves through meditation and stuff like that the car was actually performing better which doesn't make any sense to someone who's got a complete scientific mind you know, um, so I, I was reading all the stuff and learning all the stuff at the Czech Institute and through my own research and stuff like that, and said, right, let's start doing this with our players because I know we'll get these players to be better human beings. They'll 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 be more grateful for the opportunity they've got. They'll give back to the communities. They'll do all those types of things. You know, um, but again, it was it was a difficult sell because. Some people cannot see the connection between, you know, I, I, I can give you an example and I won't mention a name, but that guy's working, this guy's working as a elite coach now. And he said to me, he said, I don't care what they do outside the gate. They can eat freaking donuts. They can do whatever they want. As soon as they come in here, I want them to perform. And I just thought, how freaking naive is that? How naive is that? I mean, they're only with us for a few hours a day and you don't care what they're doing outside there because what they're doing out there is <laughs> creating habits and creating uh, chaos in their just their own health and their their whole life, and you expect them to change them and listen to you when they come in here. You know, the default patterns of people are so strong. There's no way that's going to happen. Um, so I started actually teaching some of these philosophies actually to just anybody who wanted to 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 learn and get better. 
All right. And so I opened it up and I did it the first courses in New Zealand. And I had people coming for housewives and stuff like that because the performance principles apply to anybody. It's not just elite athletes. Um, so I started teaching that and, you know, then, then started teaching it to these professional athletes and stuff like that. And now that I'm 50, um, I've just started. If you, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if the tab's even open on my website. Um, starting 50 forward because I want to teach it to people that are starting to age. And so if you're over the age of 45 or even slightly below that and heading towards 50, you come in, I'll teach you all these principles that I teach elite athletes because it's not just for elite athletes. It's about elite performance for your body and health. You know, the principles apply. So um, running retreats for that and uh, I'm going to have an online training course for people that are over 50 to, to, to learn these things uh, as part of my lead the pack work. Um, but also I consult to coaches, I consult to business leaders, um, to teams. I was fortunate enough, you know, it was a very exciting time to win the All-Ireland with the Uttarad football team, intermediate football team. So, you know, going on that journey, you see how difficult it is to actually get to an All-Ireland final and win one. Because you've got to win your county, then you've got to win your province, and then you've got to win All-Ireland. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable for a small village to do that. So it's great to be involved in that um, and to have some input into evolving those players as not just athletes, but as human beings on that journey, you know? So that's what Lead the Pack's all about because at the end of the day, you know, I want to, I want to, I want the, the world to be a better place, man, you know? And the impact I can have on in my small way or however large I can impact, all, all the better, you know? But I want people, because everyone is striving to be better, I think there's not, person you could bump into the street who actually wouldn't want to be better <clears throat> they're just a little bit lost on that journey and how to get there so we all need guides we all need mentors you know Paul Check was a massive guide in my life um, had lots of others as well but um, that's what lead the packs ultimately about so I work in business corporations sports um, with individuals um, and with groups you know that the retreats are fantastic you go away um, I've been out there in Ireland a good few times now, run retreats out there, and it just breaks people away from the mainland, gets them to reset. You know, cell phones are off, and we start learning, and we start taking care of ourselves, and just seeing what it's like to slow everything down, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, no, great stuff. So we're going to wrap up here with a few, now, I'd say they're quick fire round, but again, your answers can be as long as you want. Interested to hear, what is a day in the life of Greg Muller like? So generally, I, I, my, I get up and have a morning routine, you know, and that morning routine includes meditation. Um, I do some stuff for my health. I might do some stretching. I do exercise. Uh, I do some reading. So I'm always recharging my brain. And that, that morning routine can be anything from, depends on my day, how busy my day is, but it's always in there. And the shortest would be probably about 30 minutes up to two and a half hours. All right. So, you know, like if you had said to me, um, <clears throat> you know, if you had said to me 10 years ago, you'll be, you, you, you'll do a, do a meditation for an hour. I'd be like, you, you lost your mind. Like now I can sit and do a meditation, but I've had to work at it. And, you know, I work at it every day. Uh, and there's days when that battle to, to sit and do it is still come back, you know, but I see the benefits and it's just creating momentum. <clears throat> so I do that. And then I will, um, then, then, then my day is, I don't have a typical day because, uh, and I like it like that. I have different, different things going on. Um, 
I do, I see some people for still who just want to do fitness and health and fitness. I work with some teams. Um, I have some people that have con uh, consult with in terms of leadership um, that I'm mentoring uh, or helping, you know, business leaders and stuff like that. Um, and also do some rehabilitation for some athletes because the Czech system is incredibly good at that. So I've had some really difficult cases come across my come across me because they haven't been able to get fixed and I've helped them out. So yeah, it's 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 very different most of my day most of my day, but it's good and challenging. Yeah, great stuff. Always interested to hear people's take with this question. How do you learn? So just to give a little more context to that question, there is a topic you want to absolutely master the shit out of this topic. What's your process? Good question. That's a good question. Um, when I sat with the nutritionist from the All Blacks who was at uh, a Czech holistic health lifestyle coaching course, this is over 20 years ago, and he said to me, holy shit, this guy knows some stuff. And he goes, imagine if we just keep learning and reading what we'll be like in 20 years. People will be saying that about us. And at the time, I thought, man, I don't know if they'll be saying that. But I get that said to me now. So the first answer to your question is, I, like I said in my morning routine, I read every day, all right? And I have, a, I have a target where I say, I must read four pages a day. That's it. And if, I, if I set the target low, I know I'll achieve it, all right? I always read more than four. But that's what I do. So that's why the books behind me, most of them I've read because I've just gone through them. You'll be surprised. You get through four pages, you go, oh, that's really good. And you keep going. <clears throat> um, but if I already want to master something, and that's a, a really important thing, is because most people aren't masters of what they do, because the first principle is mastery takes a long time. And I actually, I didn't say that before, but part of my day also is I'm developing or, or I'm writing. So I'm just writing a bigger article now. It's part of that's a mastery. Um, it's actually going to form a book eventually. But um, and I'm also developing my courses, my my online courses. But um, so mastery takes anything between 20 to 25 years, but at time alone is not not a not a a great indicator of mastery. Um, you have to dive deep into your subjects. Like, you know, <clears throat> for example, if you say to someone, well, they've pulled their calf muscle, can you give me seven ways that they could have pulled that, that you know, right down to understanding, for example, that the phrenic nerve, um, which reflexes from the adrenals up to the um, C3 to C5 in the neck is part of why you could have pulled your calf. Most people couldn't do that, but that's only come to me because I've studied deeply into these subjects, you know, because the adrenals reflect, uh, reflex, they dump to the calf, all right? And the reason that the phrenic nerve is in there is because of a very old system in us for survival, which is the phrenic nerve re uh, reflexes from the adrenals up into the survival area to allow us to turn the neck, right, for survival, because if there's a, if there's a tiger coming or a lion coming, we're going to freaking turn our neck and then we're going to run. You know, so the adrenals release all those corners. They say, get the fuck out of here now. All right. And then you pull your calf. So, you know, the, understanding that you've got to go deep into things. So your question is, how do you do it? You've got to keep relearning stuff. How many people would you know that have read a book 10 times? The same book. Most people don't. They go on to another book or they go on to something else. So they're learning little bits and pieces. I'm just studying a course now, which I'm going through for the fourth time, fifth time. And man, you, you get deeper every time you start to understand, you know, 
you start to really get a good grasp of what you're doing. And that's how you master something. Um, and there's also the layering of learning. So what I tend to do is stay on themes. So I'll stay on a theme of this and say, right, I need to learn this. And I then get it from another source and it takes me to the next layer. It takes me to the next layer and so on. Up. You know? Mm, great stuff. Have you come across the book Made to Stick? Just a quick interjection here in this part of the podcast. I just want to make a very important correction. The book that I am talking about with Greg here is called Make It Stick, not Made to Stick. Made to Stick is a book by the Heat Brothers, which is another book I've read. But the book that I'm talking about with Greg in this particular discussion is called Make It Stick. So M-A-K-E, Make It Stick, which is by Peter C. Brown, Henry L. Rodiger, and Mark A. McDaniel. And that is linked up in the show notes. So the book I'm talking about with Greg in this episode is called Make It Stick. So just make sure I get that correct for you guys. So it's not made to stick. That's by the Heat Brothers. That's a, that's a different book altogether. The book I'm talking about here is called Make It Stick. No, I haven't seen that one. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. It's it's essentially a book on how to master learning. And just one of the concepts that really grabbed me in it was the fallacy of rereading. So because so they they're, the concept that they put across in the book is that a lot of people, they read material and in the moment, they're like, they understand the material and they um and they may go back and reread and and they get this sort of like false sense of security that if they read something understand it and if they can go back and reread it again that like they they've understood the information and that they will retain it so their whole thing is there's a difference between like understanding something and retaining it um and it's it's a phenomenal book like it's it's really really increased my quality of um growth and development and studying so before i would say i used to read but now i study and i always make a difference or uh, i always differentiate between reading and studying reading to me is more passive whereas like studying is like where you're really trying to actually retain the information but the main premise from that book was listen if you want to really master a topic or retain information and i love this because it's just like so simple they just i could even like see how they said it or pretend as that they just go, you have to take a test. <laughs> They're like, we're sorry, people, but you need to actually test that you've retained information. So the way um, I work at it, this is personally what I do, and it actually came from a story they told in the book of this physiology teacher. Every day her, her students will come into the class. She would say, okay, everyone take out a pen and a blank piece of paper and summarize what we did yesterday. And she'd yeah. say, I, I don't care what you remember or what you think you remember, just do it. So it was, it was just, it really, really helped me personally. So how I've used that is I will, if I'm, let's say like right now I'm doing the autonomic nervous system in my physiology. So chapter 15, I've done this in each chapter in the book. And when I learned about these techniques, I went back and started all over again. And it's just so much better. Like, but I would read, you might do a passive read of the chapter, but then you go back and you do a deeper read and then section by section, paragraph by paragraph, you read it then you summarize it and then it's kind of like you said there there is a bit of repetition in that you start to see the pattern in each paragraph oh these are the two key points and then you can really take that paragraph and be like right these are two key words that will trigger what was in that paragraph so like with the autonomic nervous system like 
its comparison against this the somatic nervous system. Then it gets into autonomic sensory motor, gets into the ganglia, gets into the, the motor divisions, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Then it gets into the anatomy of the autonomic nervous system. This is the chapter. Then it gets into the pre-ganglia, the pre or the presynaptic ganglia, or the pre ganglia the pre-ganglia neurons then the ganglia and the post-ganglia and then the plexus so that's the layout already the chapter so you can see i've already i already and that's only just from a day study but how i do that is i'll close my eyes and summarize it and then either later that day or the following morning i'll take my written test and then eventually i just build on that and then by the end when i have the whole chapter done it's a whole chapter test and then chapter 15 is done and then i move on chapter 16 17 and like it's it's no different to learn the skill in that it's just it's just um plasticity of the brain like um i see learning like uh no different than, than like training a physical quality like work capacity or strength or speed or strength power or speed in that like if you were to look at a periodization model too like i it, it just it, this is going to, if you were just doing a topic if you really wanted to master a topic i'd see like a, going from general you're you're accumulating all the general information around the topic then you go into your intensification. So you go accumulation, intensification, you know, you start to narrow down and be a little more focused. And then realizations where you start to kind of create something from all the, the previous accumulation and intensification study you've done. So it's no different to training in terms of mastering physical quality. That's kind of how I see it. But um, the key, the key thing that I'm starting to learn now is just like training qualities, like again, like aerobic capacity or strength, power, speed. I'm very interested to see how long, do the residuals of that retention of information last? Like how often do I have to go back and touch on the information to, you know, make sure that it's still within my long-term memory. Um, and what I found so far is that when I do go back, it takes a way less effort to remember the information. So like if I go through the chapter, it takes less time just to get through it and then take a retest, like a refresher test, like the information comes way quicker. No different than if, you know, if you had a, a big history of strength training and didn't train for a while and went back, you'd, you'd gain your strength back much, much quicker than a complete newbie, like because of there's some, you know, dormant, you know, uh, molecular memory of your previous strength levels. So similar enough in terms of the, the long-term potentiation and long-term memory. Like, so that, that's, that book really just changed study for me. So like, again, I, I often, I know I'm rambling here and thanks for being patient. Again, I, I hear like a lot of people are like, you know, I, I, I just have to read 10 pages. I'm sorry, this isn't, I'm not going to you now. But like, oh, I read 10 pages a day or I have to do four hours. And it's more quantity than quality. Do you know, so like how, how often like would you get someone to read 10 pages? And then if you said to them, what, what did you just read there? Like most of you are like, um. I get what you're saying. I oh, yeah. So, um, so the, their whole thing is like, if you really want to retain information, you, you have to like take a test. It's, it's really just learning has to be active. If it can be active. It's like Jim Quick has that fast principle. He's like, forget, be active, uh, state and teach. So his whole thing is, if you want to learn a new topic, forget what you think you already know about it because you'd be too close-minded initially. Then he's like, it has to be active. You have to actually participate. So that's probably where like things like writing out tests and questions and all that are really, really good. Then the state you're in, are you hydrated? What's the environment surrounding you? That has a big impact. And then teach it. That's another thing. Like, if you really want to master anything, it's teaching it really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'll just say a couple of things on that. There's a book um, that I read. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, I actually freaking lost the book. I left it up in one of the hotels when I was away with a team. Um, but it was about learning. And what they did is they, they, they um, the world record, for example, was remembering numbers, sequences of numbers, you know? So we can 
the reason phone numbers are seven digits long is because most of us can hold that in our memory. Say the world record was something like 90 numbers, right? They use these principles that were in this book and just a guy off the street ended up doing something 230 something numbers. And but one of the one of the lessons they talk about in there is about yeah it's not just you you learn a little chunks you see if you just start reading a book and you read right through that book you freaking forget most of it you know goes in one ear and out the other the other thing is what you're talking about there is Brian Tracy is the only person I've seen that has a um, a chart on this about the unlearning curve so your exposure to something once. And then if you don't have another exposure to it within a certain amount of time, the curve just drops off. So after about six weeks, I think it is, you do 90% of what you learn is gone. But the test one is big. I think that's oh, huge, man. I think, um, and people avoid them because they don't like them. But the whole yeah. thing is, is that's it. Uh, and, 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 that's, and that's what they actually talk about in the book, Made to Sick. So they say that they get misinterpreted an awful lot because of the way the school system is in America in that, you know, people are like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad test. You know, I'm bad at test. Can you not just like, can you not just uh, like, you know, do me on the year like merit, you know, that kind of way. It's it, it, rather than final test. And their whole thing is like, we're, we're not talking about like these end of year tests that will determine your life in college grades. They're just like, if you want to master a topic, you need to test yourself because yeah. otherwise you won't. Like another great principle in that book, well, principle or maybe, I don't know what you say it's a principle, but another great tip we'll just say for now, and I really did like this, was they were like, you were far better off attempting to recall information and be completely arseways wrong and, 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 and instead of not taking a test because you're just too afraid to be wrong. Their whole thing is like, you're either going to you're either going to be right or you're going to learn. It's either way. It's a win-win. And they just said, you got to change that perception that, oh, I'm, I'm going to be wrong. It's a bit like grit to, or, um, yeah, is that Andrew Duckworth? She was great. Yeah, because mindset's Carol Dweck. But, we, you know, um, which one was it? Grit or mindset? I think it was mindset, was it? Or was it grit? Fixed mindset, close. No, it was it was uh, the mindset book. Um, where she talks about, uh, yeah, it's fixed and growth mindset. Whereas people with the fixed mindset, they were told like, oh, you're so talented. Whereas the, the, the growth mindset people told, oh, you, you work very hard. So the growth mindset people, like they weren't afraid to try and, be, and like get wrong because they knew that was a part of growing and developing. Whereas the other kids that were told, oh, you're just so talented, they, were, they got too afraid to try because they were like, shit, I can't let it be seen that like this is hard. I was told that like, you know, I make everything look easy and I'm so talented. So that they were in this fixed mindset, then they couldn't grow. So it's similar to what they say in, in Made to Stick in that they're like, you're just, I just love that. They're like, you're far better off. Again, like thinking about that physiology teacher, like you're just far better off writing down like the heart and just being completely bollocks wrong about the heart. Like, oh, like it's, uh, you know, like the Venus return goes in, in the, the, the left atrium and even though it's the right atrium. And do you know what I mean? And the right ventricle goes to the rest of the body, even though it goes to the pulmonary system. You know, it's the left ventricle that pumps out to the, systemic system yeah you'd be better off getting it wrong because then when, when you go to correct you're like oh and you know yourself it's when you were when you thought something was right and you realize oh that's wrong you remember it so much better yeah. because because you're like oh remember i used to think that and it's like oh, i was wrong about that because it's like anything it's it's like we humans just have this negativity bias obviously built into us from evolutionary survival like if you went out right now greg and you were taking some drop goals 
are practicing your fucking conversions in rugby and you kick 99 out of 100, what would you be thinking about the whole day? The one you missed. Because it's just how we're wired. Like, so it's the same with learning and that you're better off being wrong, like, and realizing it's not, you're not wrong. You're either going to be, you're either going to write or you're going to learn like this. So I really enjoyed that book. Cool, man. That sounds like a good read. I might uh, get that one. I've, I've certainly got a few that I still have <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, just, just for the listeners, he says that with a fucking mountain of books behind his head there already. So. <laughs> well, I tell you what, that I, I would assume the library has it because I just got it out of the library. That's what I do with all books because I just, same as yourself, like I just have too many books and I'm just like, right, I'm just going to have to start like getting, like if I need any textbooks, I'll buy them, but like say like popular science books or anything like that, I just, I just get them through the library, you know, like stuff like David Epstein's The Gene or any stuff yeah. by Swalski, like Behave, I just get that from the library. Um, listen, final one here for you because I know you have a family to get there, family man, and you might have an appointment or whatnot. Um, I'm going to take you for dinner and you can invite five people to this dinner and the five people can be dead or alive or they can and they can also be sorry not or and they can also be fictitious or real so like they could be a superhero or a real person which five people would you bring to this dinner and why? Um, good question I've done that myself a good few times um, I would take Barack Obama uh, why? because I just like to know what what the, the, the US president's actually dealing with yeah. on, on a daily basis and some of the decisions he has to make and the leadership roles he's had to be involved in. Why did you use drones so much? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and just to see how involved he is as a person as well because I've read things on him that uh, have interested me. Um, so he'd be one. I would take... Um, um, I would take... Um, Andre Agassi, he's someone that uh, I, I have read his book, very interesting book, but I also think he's a he's a good human being as well. Mm. Um, so I'd like to 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 know more about him. Um, who else would I take? Jeez, um, I've not been asked five before, so you got me thinking now. And there's lots of people I'd like, but just getting off the top of my head, you know. Um, um, I would like to take um, Jennifer Aniston. She's. I just like to see what her life's been about, you know, because you hear, you see stuff on the in the in the tabloids and stuff like that. But uh, what she like as a real person, you know. Um, so I'd be interested to see uh, what she what what makes her tick and stuff like that. Like I'm I'm interested in understanding people people from a deeper perspective, you know. That's what gets me going and um, uh, so here I'd also like to Albert Einstein I'd like mm. to have him there you know because I think he and interesting actually I've got this book here um, it talks about Albert Einstein I don't know if anyone's read that book The Formula um, but it actually Albert Einstein became famous by mistake because you know, if you think about it from reality most people wouldn't know about the scientific um, experiments that are going on and what he what he did, and only scientists would really be interested in that. And they explain in that book was it was by default that he actually became be known as a global superstar type of thing, you know. Um, yeah. So um, the last person is I'll take. Um, oh, who am I going to take? I'll just say Tiger Woods. Yeah, Tiger Woods, because Tiger's some of the uh, oldest. I'm interested in human performance, man. And I, 
I think what he's done is unfreaking believable, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so his, his, I've read a bit about him, quite a bit about him, and just his mindset and stuff of like that. So, yeah, it'd be good to have him there. So we had Barack Obama, Andrew Agassi, Jennifer Anderson, Albert Einstein, Tiger Woods. Yeah, bit of mix up there. Yeah, it is a bit of a mix up. Isn't it? You just see like Tiger, you know, talking about golf, and there's Albert there doing equations. <laughs> yeah, well, I, if you gave me a bit more time, I'd probably come up with a slightly different list, but um, <laughs> that's what came off the top of my head right now. Oh, no, listen, that's great, man. It's great. Well done. Listen, Greg, that's been phenomenal. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your your patience when I start to ramble. I'm trying to get better, not rambling. I did I did keep uh, it to, I did keep it till the end. Um, just again, once again, for people who want to reach out to you, is there a best resource? Is there an email or social media or just through the website? Just let people know where they can reach out. Yeah, just uh, go onto my website um, and you can you can link up to me there, leadthepack.net, um, or you can email me at greg dot uh, greg at leadthepack.net. That's the easiest way to get hold of me. Sweet. I'll, I'll have all that linked up in the show notes in terms of the website. So, uh, phenomenal stuff. And for everyone listening, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.